Well, good morning. My name is Taylor Bruce. I am one of the pastors on staff here at the church, and I work primarily with 6th through 12th graders, though I also enjoy hanging out with some of the kids, and I, uh, I do like an adult conversation from time to time. I want to welcome you to Central, where we seek the transformation of our lives, our communities, and the world through the renewing work of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. This week, we're going to finish off Hebrews chapter 12. And this is really the theological conclusion to the section that was started all the way back at the beginning of chapter 11, where our preacher told us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And last week, Clay talked about running the race. And this week, we're going to talk about the finish line. We're going to talk about what the hope that assures our faith, what that is. Would you pray with me before we jump into the scripture? Jesus, I pray that my words would be your words this morning and not my own. Um, Lord, I know I need to hear this as much as anybody here. And so I pray that you would minister to me. God, I pray for our ears that we would hear you. Uh, Father, if I say anything that's not meant to be said, I pray that it would not be heard. God bless us all as we engage your word, um, as we hear from you. Help us to be encouraged, help us to be challenged. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 18 of chapter 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire in darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Um, So I, I enjoy sports a lot. I'm not particularly good at any of them. I can play a good amount of them. Uh, But I do, I love um, kind of the things that I feel like I learn about life through sports. And one of the things that I have um, started to really follow as I've gotten a little bit older is like endurance sports. Um, I love a good basketball game. I love a good baseball game. I love a good soccer game. But to me, endurance sports have really become this space where we get to see people's limits, where they're tested. Um, every summer, two of the hardest and most prestigious ultra-endurance races are held. So if you don't know what an ultra-marathon is, it's essentially anything that's longer than a marathon, which to some of you might be like, I didn't think that there was a race that was longer than a marathon. Well, there are. There are plenty. And every summer, there are two that are held, and these are some of the most prestigious. You actually have to earn a spot to go run in them. You can't just sign up and pay the fee. Um, And the first Uh, This year was held on June 24th and 25th. It's the Western States Endurance Race. Um, It winds itself through the Sierra Nevada Mountains in California. It is 100.2 miles long. 
And over the course of the race, it has an elevation gain of over 18,000 feet. Three weeks later, on July 14th and 15th, the Hard Rock 100 was held. It starts and ends in Silverton, Colorado. It is also 100.2 miles long, but it has an elevation gain of 33,000 feet. Most of that race is run at 11,000 feet of elevation or higher, which if you've ever even just tried to walk at 11,000 feet, it's a struggle. Now, most of these elite athletes who run in these races will only run one or the other every year because they're three weeks apart and they're so long. But not Courtney DeWalter. Because this year, Courtney DeWalter ran both races. She ran the Western States, that 100.2-mile race through the Sierra Nevadas, in 15 hours, 29 minutes, and 34 seconds. And then three weeks later, she ran the Hard Rock 100 in 26 hours, 14 minutes, and 12 seconds. Now, these times may not mean a whole lot to you. They're fast for what they are. These times were not only good enough for her to win the women's races this year, but she set the course records for both of them. Now, when I was in sixth grade, (laughs) P.E. changed for me. Prior to that, it was a lot of basketball. It was a lot of innumerable ways to play tag and capture the flag. It was super fun. But in sixth grade, I learned that I had to run the mile. And so I would sit in my home economics class, which was still a thing at the time, and I would stare out the window at the field where I knew I was going to have to run the mile. And I was filled with anxiety and fear and dread, and I kept wondering, why couldn't video games be a PE activity? (laughs) I really like those. For many of us, I think life feels like we've been thrown into a 100-mile race, only we're not world-class athletes. We're a whole lot like sixth-grade me. We're just regular old folks who would rather sit on the couch and play video games. Life feels overwhelming and scary, and we have no idea how we're going to get through to the end, much less how we're going to even get through today. Many of us have kids who struggle with some sort of brain dysfunction, like ADHD or autism or something. Many of us are dealing with breakups, with broken marriages. Some of us are entering into new marriages or just trying to figure out how to do marriage. We deal with bullies in the lunch line. We lose jobs. We get new jobs. We go to new schools. We go to new cities. We have friends who turn into enemies. And we deal with abuse and pain and betrayal from our past. And we're constantly wondering every day, how are we going to get to the finish line? And for the original recipients of this letter, it was no different. This little house church that was situated in the middle of Rome was surrounded by a giant empire breathing down its neck. They had neighbors who wouldn't talk to them and old friends who had turned into enemies over a difference of beliefs about the Messiah. And the temptation to run away to something else was real. The suffering and the pain and the threats and the persecution could all end with one little switch in their beliefs. In God's kingdom, the thing that seemed really great when they started out, they realized more and more that there was still pain and there was still suffering, only now they didn't have the pleasures of all the things they used to run to in order to make them feel good. Hardship causes us to trade God's kingdom for lesser kingdoms. The preacher who wrote this knows this temptation, but he also knows the reality they are living in and that this little house church has forgotten it. They are on the verge of making a terrible decision with dire consequences. 
So the preacher reminds them of the reality as he recalls Exodus 19 and 20 as an encouragement to stay the course. These first few verses in this section, that's the backdrop of this. And in Exodus 19 and 20, we learn that about three months after God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he brings his people to the foot of Mount Sinai to make this covenant with them. We read in Exodus 19, 4 through 6, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God sends, gives these words to Moses. Moses takes them back to the people. They agree to the covenant. And then God invites the people up to the mountain to hear his voice so they could know he was real. But he warns them not to go up onto the mountain. They can hear him, but they cannot see him because God is too holy. And if they broke through the barrier that was set forth between them, separating God from them at the base of the mountain, he would have no choice but to break out and consume them. And they would die. But God doesn't want that to happen, so he sets limits for them. And as God descends on this mountain and it's full of thunder and lightning and it's loud and it's bright, and there's fire, he invites the people to come near to him. But the people are scared and they stand far off and they do not even want to hear God's voice. Moses pleads with them. He tells them not to be afraid that they're being tested. They are being made holy and sanctified. They're being consecrated. But they still stay far away out of fear. Now, it's not too much further into the story where the people in increasing fear and dread turn from their covenant with God to create a golden idol to worship. Israel, all those years ago, also had the temptation to trade God's greater kingdom for the lesser shakable kingdoms of the world. And their first act of, of obedience was to come up to the mountain, but they failed. In recalling this story to this little house church in Rome, the preacher's challenging his recipients, will you follow suit? Will you trade God's greater unshakable kingdom for this lesser shakable kingdoms of the world? Now, I don't want to downplay the cost of suffering. It's awful. All the ways in which we suffer, and I know that everybody in this room has experienced it in some way. All the ways that we suffer are hard and they're often painful and full of confusion. And in the face of such hardships, it is enticing to run to the lesser kingdoms of the world. And these lesser kingdoms are the ways in which the world rejects God's call to be holy and to come to him in its hardship. The world creates its own gods and its own images of accomplishments and success, of getting more and more stuff, of chasing after popularity and notoriety. Or the world tries to numb its senses to the hard and scary things by losing itself in substance abuse and addictions, to drugs, to sex, to just buying and amassing more stuff. But church, we're often not a whole lot different. Because we, try to, we strive to make our worlds a little less scary and more controlled through legalism. We lose ourselves in trying to be better, more committed followers of Christ, and proving to everyone else that we are. We become more critical than caring of the world around us. And the fallout is that in both cases, with the world and with the church, we ultimately become pretty rotten people to be around. Why do we run away from God when he beckons us to come near? I think like the Israelites, we fear other things more than we fear God. See, the Israelites, when they came up to the mountain, they feared death more than God. And so they stayed far away. We also fear God incorrectly. We have a fear of him, but we don't understand his love for us. When we face hardships, 
all of a sudden the questions start roaming through our heads. Have you forgotten about us? Do you even care about us? The chisel dust on the covenant had barely settled before the Israelites had broken it. As they're watching God descend on the mountain and Moses has been gone for six days, they're thinking to themselves, God must have forgotten us. He doesn't care about us. In fact, we wouldn't be facing all this hardship if he remembered and cared about us. So we'll make our own gods and we will know that they will not forget us nor forsake us. The problem is that these idols, these other things that we worship are not real. and They can't actually solve our problems. So what does God do when we find ourselves in this place? Well, he shows us that he's more caring than critical to us. He's more committed to our faithfulness than we are. And so God uses his presence in our hardship to help us live as his greater kingdom. The preacher uses this story from Exodus 19 and 20 to show this to them. He wants them to understand their earthly reality. He says, you think you're just facing hard and scary things. But in verse 18, he tells them, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. Meaning you have not come up to something that you can fathom, that you can really understand by looking at it, by seeing it, by hearing it. You think the empire and the persecution and the social exclusion are the things you're dealing with, but they're not. You're actually being tested by God, just like the Israelites. The scary thing is not the things that you can touch and see. The scary thing is that you are being tested by God and you are thinking of shrinking away from that. He says, you are the new Israel. God is calling you to draw near to him in your anxiety and fear and dread. Only unlike Israel, you have Jesus who has already consecrated you once and for all. We read in verse 2 of this chapter, he's the pioneer and perfecter of their faith. Jesus is the holy and consecrated one. And he comes alongside them and uses their hardships, their anxiety, their fear, and their dread. And his salvation applied to them to consecrate them so they can not only come up to the mountain, but come all the way onto the mountain. It's Jesus' obedience that will save them from themselves. But as the preacher notes in verse 24, because of Jesus' blood, the new and better covenant, he doesn't just want them to understand their earthly reality, he also wants them to see their heavenly reality. In verse 1 of the previous chapter, the preacher tells us that their faith is the assurance of the hope they already have. Unlike Israel, they don't just ascend an earthly Mount Sinai, but they get to ascend the eternal Mount Zion. They get to not only hear God's voice, but they get to see his face. And if they are his children, then he's not scary. He's gentle and kind, and his arms are stretched out wide. And the truth is, is that God was always this way. It's our sin that kept us from seeing it. Yet Jesus won this great prize for us. We get to daily lean on him in the midst of our anxiety and fear and dread. And this is faith. Kara Powell is uh, this researcher. She works at the Fuller Institute, which is a seminary out in California. And she does a lot with uh, kind of the intersections of youth culture and faith and and all that. And so she's written a number of books. And uh, one of her books, The Three Big Questions, she she interviewed a bunch of teenagers from a, a wide variety. And they kind of brought all the questions together and were able to kind of coalesce them into three main categories. Um, These three big questions that she says that teenagers are constantly asking themselves, whether they articulate it this way or not, but it's what's there. Who am I? Do I belong? And what difference can I make? In her book, she makes the statement that these questions don't stop after you're a teenager, that the adults in this room are all asking the same questions. And we often seek the answers to these questions in all the kingdoms that compete with God's kingdom. The preacher is engaging his congregation 
with these same questions and reminding them of their identity. You are a holy nation already. You wouldn't be on Mount Zion if you weren't. And he reminds them that they do belong. You are God's treasured possession no matter what. You belong to him. Look at what he was willing to do to purchase you. He spent the blood of his own son. But I think it's a fair question to ask, why all the fear-inducing hardship? Because if that's already true, why not just skip all of this and take us straight to heaven? The preacher wants them to see that they are God's kingdom on earth who are being prepared for the finish line, this hope of the heavenly, earthly reality united in existence for all eternity. But that reality is not possible without God's fire consuming everything that doesn't belong. That reality is not possible without God shaking everything that he's made, judging it to see if it is eternal or not. What is eternal, that which can withstand the fire, stays for eternity. And that which is only earthly and finite, that which can do nothing but burn up, burns up. Life is full of hardship in all its forms. Our own failings, persecution, doubts, pain, suffering— Each of these instances are preparations for the final fire. And if we have spent our entire lives trying to avoid these sorts of things, I want to tell you, first of all, it's not possible. You can't insulate yourself enough from all the hardships of the world. But you're also setting yourself up to be afraid of the fire at the end of life. And you should be. Because you will have spent your whole life running from God. So when he shows up in your face, you will, of course, want to run but you will have no place to go. Because this all-consuming fire will consume you for all of eternity. Jesus likened this existence to being stuck in a burning pile of trash for all of eternity. And he called it hell. But also know this, God does not want that for you. In fact, that is why he's warning you this morning. That's why we're reading this passage. All the hardship that you're facing in your life is him drawing you to him. Only he can help you through it. We're not promised that he will make the pain or the suffering go away in this life. But we are promised that he will be a comfort to us and that he will meet us in the midst of our anxiety and our fear and our dread. This is actually how he forms us into the greater unshakable kingdom. And this is only possible through the final all-consuming fire. And so the preacher, speaking to his congregation, gives them three invitations. The first is this. He says to personally welcome this final fire. If we have come near to God in all of these times of hardship, we will welcome God's all-consuming fire at the end of our lives. We will want it because we will have come to a place where we understand that all we could draw near to here for comfort will always leave us wanting. And we will know that all we want is Jesus, and the only way for us to have him forever is to draw near to his all-consuming fire that consecrates us so it can burn off everything else. And this is really what God is testing in us. That's what testing is. He's not seeing if you're good enough or if you measure up. He's seeing if you're willing to admit that you aren't good enough and you don't measure up. Another way of putting it is that he's seeing if he's the thing you fear most. Solomon in Proverbs says it this way, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. The wisdom in this verse is this. What you fear most is what you will worship. Our call is to worship God. This then is how we reject all the false earthly kingdoms and embrace citizenship in God's heavenly kingdom. We learn to fear him the most by throwing off everything else that we falsely fear. 
He's seeing if you turn to Jesus in that moment of facing the all-consuming fear of him because Jesus is good enough and he does measure up. And he gives both of those realities to you. When Israel failed miserably by chasing after an idol less than six days after agreeing to not do that, God still upheld his covenant with them. God was faithful when Israel failed. This is the same pattern he extends to us in Jesus. It is through this life of testing that they come to the answers to the three big questions. Um, I don't remember the date, probably 2012, 2013 maybe. Um, my, so between Leah and Ben, who are my second and third children, um, Emily and I had two miscarriages. Uh, at that time, I had come out of a hard church situation. I was kind of floundering through seminary, trying to figure out what my purpose there was. Um, was it to make really good grades and go off and maybe teach at another facility? Was it like lofty ministry goals? I thought so. When all of that kind of got pulled away, where I landed was, I know, I don't know anything else, but I have two great daughters. I've done an amazing job of raising them. You know where this is going. So I think I'll find my identity in being a dad. And so one day I came home from class and I walked in and I think Molly and Leah were probably about three and five, maybe two and four. And I walked into our, our like entry front room place and there was a giant banner that was hanging up and it said, congratulations, we're pregnant. And I was so overjoyed. I mean, it was just like, the, it, was the, it, was like it was like confirmation of this thing. Like, I don't know what else is going on, but I know that I'm a dad. And less than 48 hours later, Emily miscarried. And I remember standing in our church with people around us, praising God and singing and just being so angry and so hurt and wondering, Lord, what are you doing? I was searching for my identity in the wrong place. And I was searching for belonging. I wanted everyone else to see that I had it all together. I don't have full answers on why that happened, but at least part of it is that God used this time of hardship and suffering to draw me in deeper with him. I wanted so badly to run away and I could just hear him calling me in and saying, no, come closer. And so the subsequent months after this happened, I started reading through Job and the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I could hear God quietly whispering to me, son, your identity can only be found in me and to me, you are already a holy nation. You belong to me. You don't have to try and live up to anyone else's standards. I have given you purpose, and you don't have to try and create it. Now, I learned all this slowly, and I still am learning this. Through prayer and reading through the Bible and engaging in the church community that God had given us, he slowly taught me these things. So who do the recipients of this letter learn that they are? They learn that they're God's kingdom, a holy nation. They learn that he's using their hardships to consecrate them, to make them holy. And they're learning that they belong to him, that they are God's treasured possession. He doesn't leave them in their hardship and far from them being punished in it. They are having all, they're having all that is not eternal tested out of them. He wouldn't spend that amount of time on them if they weren't his treasured possession. But there's a third question that they're asking themselves. Not just who they are, not just if they belong, but what difference can they make? They're small. They're beaten down. They're poor. They don't even know if they can go on. And so the preacher turns to answer this third question with two final invitations. 
It says, just as you have learned to welcome the final fire yourselves, it's your role to help your brothers and sisters welcome that same final fire. Our faith, our ability to face hard things head on without knowing about any earthly success is the reward we get in the here and now. We get courage. That's the faith that, they, that the preacher talks about in 11. We get to draw near to God. And so what difference can we make? Well, the key is in the rest of chapter 11 and the early parts of chapter 12. You see, there's this great cloud of witnesses. These are those who have gone through the fires of life before us. So how could Courtney DeWalter get to the end of her two 100.2-mile races? I have absolutely no idea. I enjoy running. I don't run that much. But I do know in the runs that I have done, in my experience, there's this amazing power that happens at the finish line. Um, the scientists have studied these things. We realize there's some like hormonal chemical things going on, and serotonin just starts firing off like crazy. And so what happens is you have all these people at the finish line who are super excited for everybody who's running in because there's this thing that they're accomplishing that's like hard. And the people who are running in and accomplishing it are feeling all the people looking at them, excited for them, and it's just like this big giant tornado of excitement. And that's serotonin, just That's what the cloud of witnesses is like. That's what they provide for us as they cheer us on. These are the righteous ones made perfect, reminding us of where we're heading and what the finish line is. We are called to embrace God's heavenly kingdom here on earth, even when reality seems to be contrary to such a notion. We are to be witnesses to those around us. When we look at the covenant promise back in Exodus, we see that we are called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, to live out our identity as the righteous made perfect. And unlike Israel, who forsook that, we are to follow the pattern that Moses set, that was carried forth by Jesus, and by the preacher who wrote this letter, and presumably by the Hebrews who read it, and by us. We are called forth to carry out this pattern, I think, in two main areas, and the first one is in our families. We are called to care for our families. I think it's fair to ask ourselves, are we spending too much time caring about stuff we ultimately cannot do much about? I think one of the worst things that's probably happened to our culture is the 24-hour news cycle because it has hit us with an amount of information that we were never intended to be able to deal with. And all of a sudden, we care about a lot of things that we can't really do a whole lot about instead of caring about the people that are around us in our vicinity immediately. When I look at Paul's letters and Peter's letters, their great plan for growing the kingdom seems to be going through the house, goes through the immediate relationships that we have. And we do this by owning the mistakes that we made and showing our spouses, our kids, our siblings, our parents, our friends, how we are relying on grace for our mistakes and to live out our call. I think the other main area where we're called to live this out in is the church. Why do we gather every week to worship? I think it's to participate in what the preacher lists off in verses 20 through, 22 through 24. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Amen. So how does this prepare us for the week? Well, we are called to remind each other of these facts that we are part of something much bigger and grander than any one of us individually could do. We are part of the eternal Mount Zion, along with all the witnesses who've come before us and all those who will come after. 
When he's speaking this here, he's speaking identity and belonging language. He's talking about membership to one another. The temptation is for us to enter into church as consumers. To hear something, to want to come hear something entertaining or to hear someone tell you something that you already agree with or to convince you that you've done enough to be holy. And yet what we come here for is to be challenged, to be tested out. That's why it's important to serve those in the church. We have a number of ministries that are needing volunteers and that's why it's important for us to enter in because we get to live those things out with those around us. We get to tell people that are younger than us, older than us, how much Jesus loves them. Older generations, you have experienced a lot in this life. And the younger generations need to see what it's like to deal with hardship and failure and rely on God's grace all the way through. Younger generations, the world is moving so fast right now. If you are older, it is scary how fast it is moving. And they could probably used to be reminded that God actually loves fun and it's okay to kind of chill out for a little bit and enjoy his creation. That's also why it's so important for us to belong to a physical church if we're able to. Even if we're at home watching online, it's important that we are connected to a physical church body because that's where we find accountability, that's where we find encouragement. And so in similar fashion to the second invitation, the preacher gives them a third invitation. He says, as you help your brothers and sisters welcome the final fire, you're also to help your enemies welcome the final fire. You have to understand in the same way that you are scared, the world is scared. And this is actually why they persecute you and revile you. But when the world is scared, we are called to draw it towards God's greater kingdom, which is us. This is what Jesus did for us. He's not vindictive. Every time we turn to these lesser kingdoms, understand that God is under no obligation to keep your status, except that he is under obligation to Jesus because Jesus is our great mediator. And within the triune Godhead, he is constantly telling the Father, remember that I have already paid the price for their sins and I have already applied my righteousness to them and they are still your treasure possession because I am your treasure possession and I have shared the status I want on their behalf with them. So you don't have to consume them. They get to come through because I'm with them. The preacher reminds us that we are God's kingdom in the world. We have to remember the blood of Jesus is greater than the blood of Abel. Our starting place with our enemies is not one of vindictiveness and justice. We can be assured of God's justice. He promises it. He tells us that the whole earth is his. So we don't have to worry about whether or not our enemies will get what's coming to them. But we would do well to remember that we were once God's enemies. And when we remember that Jesus' response to us when we turn to lesser kingdoms is one of love and mercy and grace, then we too can start with our enemies in a similar place. We start with the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, which is the blood of retribution and justice. And to be truthful, we don't really want that because it would have to apply to us as well and we're not holy enough on our own to hold up to that sort of all-consuming fire. In the same way that God drew near to us through the person of Jesus and we wanted to be far off, he calls us, his presence in the world, to draw near to it. But our temptation, especially when we think our way of life is being threatened, is to make the world a safer place for us to exist, even if that means hurting other people. And we often do that through legislation, either on a broad scale or in our own homes. We shut down our kids' questioning of their faith and ours. We only befriend those in our own political sphere. We change jobs, we change neighborhoods, we change schools, we change friend groups. But you can't legislate people's hearts. You can only legislate behavior. And Jesus is after hearts first and then behavior. 
Think about his interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. He didn't excuse her behavior, but he also didn't start with it. He started with her heart. Because behavior change always follows heart change. Otherwise, we're just calling people to make behavioral changes based on laws we've created. And this will do them no good at the end of life. But if this is what we're preaching, chances are that it's what we're relying on to get through the fire at the end of life. And we are going to be sorely shocked for all eternity. I work with students, and I know that some of you are very scared of what the culture is bringing into the world and the things they are wanting to teach our kids. And of course, these are false things. And we need to preach these to our kids. We need to preach truth to them. The truth that God sets limits. That's the whole backdrop for these verses. But what if instead of throwing insults and veiled threats online or walling ourselves off from people we deem to be threats, but who are really just as scared as we are and trying to make sense of their anxiety and fear and dread, what if we sat down and listened? What if we sought out friendship with our enemies? What if we walked, walked alongside our kids and taught them to do the same? So if I can be honest with you, this is where I struggle. Because I like my Christian bubble. It's nice. It's safe. I like it a lot. Nobody questions me in my bubble because everybody is just like me. And no one makes fun of me in my bubble. I don't have to worry about anyone hurting me in my bubble. Do you know who doesn't like my bubble? God does not like my bubble. Because he knows that eventually I'll have to make that, I'll have to make that bubble so tightly contained that it only has room for me. And so in his goodness, he continually pops it for me. God wants the world to draw near to him in its anxiety and fear and dread. He calls us to draw near to it so that it will draw near to God. And we do that primarily through understanding and empathy, just like Jesus did with us when we were his enemies. So how exactly do we live out this way of understanding and empathy near the world's pain? Will we become a calming, yet scary, presence in the world? One of the ways that I have seen this play out is in my own family. Um, if you don't know, my wife Emily is a, a mother baby nurse at Mercy, um, and she's really good at her job. Um, she often gets described by her patients and her peers as someone who brings calm into anxious situations full of fear and dread um, into circumstances like that. But she's really good at it because she understands. And she understands because she has gone through some of the scariest aspects of it. So between Megan and Katie, who are our fourth and fifth kids, and that's it, there's no more, um, we had another miscarriage. And that one hit her hard. Um, I remember going to the ultrasound for that one and in my mind thinking, I bet God is just playing a joke on us and we're going to end up with twins, so I'll have six kids instead of four. Um, and as I was sitting there, I kept thinking, something's not right, but I can't figure out what it is, and I realized, oh, I can't hear a heartbeat on the sonogram. And that hit both of us really hard. Now, I, I don't know how to make sense of that, ultimately, but I do know that out of that, my wife has become an incredible caretaker of other women. Jesus has used that in her life to bring about blessing in the world. It shows how God uses our hardships to bring his goodness to bear on those around us. And you and I are called to be a similar calming presence in this world. We're a kingdom of priests, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But we also represent a scary presence in this world because we represent a limit to the people around us. We are a holy nation. We are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We are something that says you won't find what you're looking for where you're looking. 
Chasing after accolades on the field or in the boardroom is not going to provide you with an identity worth having. A relationship born out of a disordered desire is not going to give you a sense of belonging. And amassing a collection of as much stuff or followers as possible is not a purpose worth pursuing. But we do get to sit in the world and we do get to tell them that we do know where to find what they're looking for and to say, come follow me. And of course that's scary to all of those around us. So we should expect them to fight and push back, even to the point of mocking and maybe even eventually persecuting us. Yet our call is to hold out the unwarranted grace and forgiveness of the blood of Jesus to them instead of the blood of Abel. The justice and retribution that we really want and probably are entitled to. So this week uh, started with me. I could not hear out of my left ear um, at all. And it was throwing me off and making me incredibly irritable and not a pleasant person to be around um, at all. And so finally, I went to um, the urgent care and learned that I had, this is gross, so much impacted earwax because I just overproduced it. Uh, that I couldn't hear. And I found out, I thought it was just my left ear. It was actually both ears, and they cleared it out, and I was like, I'm hearing things I have not heard in probably 10 years. This is insane, right? So that was how my week started. And then this is a great week to talk about the all-consuming fire of God because it was so hot this week, which also makes me cranky, and further cranky when our AC decided that it just wasn't going to perform at its optimum uh, optimum status. And so we were pretty hot all week and I just got angry and irritable. And I was sitting and praying one morning, grumbling, feeling the heat. And I could hear the Lord just say, hey, Taylor, you just need to see and understand what's going on. Now, these are like minor annoyances, if we're being honest. These are not like major hardships. But even in the midst of that, I could feel God's presence and reading this passage and wrestling around it of him saying, see and understand what's really going on. And that's what he's calling us to do, is to see and understand what's really going on. When your kids are unruly or when you feel like leaving your partner or when you wonder if or when God is going to send you a spouse or your married friends keep trying to make that happen, when you lose your job, when you get a new one, when you're made fun of, when you eat lunch alone, when your car isn't as nice as all the other kids' cars in the parking lot or you don't even have a car, God is reminding you that he's coming near to you. And he's inviting you to draw near to him. And in that, no matter what circumstances of hardship you face, you don't have to be anxious, full of fear or dread. You can instead know that you are being trained for the final fire through which you will find all these hardships made right. you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you so much that you love us enough to come near to us. I thank you that you are a mediator, that you pray on our behalf all the time. You know our needs more than we know our needs. We can't often make sense of some of the things that we face in this life, Jesus, but we know that you are good and you are merciful and you are drawing us closer to you and you are making us into the people you always intended us to be. I pray this morning for my brothers and sisters as they leave that you would empower them this week to do good in the lives of the people that are in their immediate vicinity. I pray that you would bring to mind those they need to love and serve. Jesus, and I pray that for myself. We love you, we praise you, and it's your name we pray. Amen.